Our scripture text this morning comes from the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 2. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Lord, how long will I call for help and you not listen? I cry to you violence, but you do not deliver us. Why do you show me injustice and look at anguish so that devastation and violence are before me? There is strife and conflict abounds. The instruction is ineffective. Justice does not endure because the wicked surround the righteous. Justice becomes warped. The Lord responds. Look among the nations and watch. Be astonished and stare because there is something happening in your days that you wouldn't believe even if I told. I am about to rouse the Chaldeans, that bitter and impetuous nation, which travels throughout the earth to possess dwelling places it does not own. The Chaldean is dreadful and fearful. He makes his own justice and dignity. His horses are faster than leopards. They are quicker than wolves of the evening. The horsemen charge forward. His horsemen come from far away. They fly in to devour swiftly like an eagle. They come for violence. The horde with all their faces set towards the desert. He takes captives like sand. He makes fun of kings. The rulers are ridiculous to him. He laughs at every fortress. Then he piles up dirt and takes it. He passes through the wind like the wind and invades, but he will not be held guilty. The one whose strength is his God. Lord, aren't you anxious, ancient, my God, my holy one? Do not let us die. Lord, you put the Chaldean here for judgment. Rock, you established him as rebuke. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You are unable to look on disaster. Why would you look at the treacherous or keep silent when the wicked sallows the one who is more, swallows the one who is more righteous? You made humans like the fish of the sea, like creeping things with no one to rule over them. The Chaldean brings this, them all up with a fish hook. He drags them away with a net. He collects them in his fishing net. Then he rejoices and celebrates. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. He burns incense to his fishing nets because due to them, his portion grows fat and his food becomes luxurious. Should he continue to empty his net and continue to slay nations without sparing them? I will take my post. I will position myself on the fortress. I will keep watch to see what the Lord says to me and how he will respond to my complaint. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write a vision. Make it plain upon a tablet so that a runner can read it. There is still a vision for the appointed time. It testifies to the end. It does not deceive. If it delays, wait for it. For it is surely coming. It will not be late. Some people's desires are truly audacious. They don't do the right thing. But the righteous person will live honestly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, Habakkuk is a prophet that, at least in my experience, doesn't get much play in the church. I have to admit that in almost, oh gosh, 20 years of preaching now, I'm not sure that I've ever preached out of Habakkuk. 
That's a shameful thing for me to admit, but it's true. I'm, I'm not sure I've ever actually preached out of this book of the Bible. It's because the questions it asks are hard. The things that the prophet Habakkuk deals with are difficult. It's interesting, if you read the other prophets and you read kind of the stories of how they were called and when they were called, you see that in those stories, in general, what happens is the word of the Lord comes to a prophet and basically reveals kind of the God's eye view on things that are going on around him. Right, so you might have Isaiah in the temple of the Lord, right? He's in the temple and he's worshiping. He has this vision of God high and lofty, right? The train of his robes are filling the temple. The seraphs are calling to one another. And, and, and God says, who will I send? Who will go for us? And, and Isaiah sillyly says, me, send me. And God gives him the message to send to the people that destruction and doom is coming, that God's judgment is coming upon the unrighteousness of the people of Israel who have defied God on every turn. Lots of the prophetic calls go that way in one way or another, where the prophet is called to speak harsh words to a people who have committed to doing something and have not done it. What makes Habakkuk interesting, in my view, is it starts with Habakkuk complaining to God. It starts with the prophet Habakkuk basically on his knees before God and saying, God, I have an issue and I need you to deal with it. It's not like God telling the prophet, this is the injustice and I need you to go tell the kings about it. The book of Habakkuk is actually the the prophet coming to God and saying, God, there is injustice all around. Habakkuk has looked around in Israel, looked around at Judah and seen that the people are not acting as they have said they would act. Remember, the the people of God, the people of Judah, the people who follow Yahweh are a people of of Torah. They they have agreed and committed to following this this way of living that God has set forth for them. They have covenanted with God. It's not that God is saying, like, imposing all these rules and saying, ha ha, I I got you. It's, It's the people have said, God, we believe your way is best and we will follow it. We will be a people. Of the Torah, we will be a people who follow after you. God, you have done mighty things, and we believe your leadership is best. But Habakkuk looks around and sees that the people are not acting as if that is true. They're not acting as if it is true that God's leadership is best. In fact, they're doing things exactly the opposite of what God has commanded them to do on almost all respects. In particular, Habakkuk points out that there are two things that he points out there is no justice in the land. And that when justice, quote unquote, is done, it is perverted. He looks around and he sees that that those who deserve justice do not get it. And those who seek for justice go perhaps to the courts or go before the leaders. and, And when justice is dispensed, it is on the side of perhaps the powerful, the rich, the influential, and not on the side of justice, of righteousness, of the things that God has called the people to be and to do. And so Habakkuk comes to God and in my mind, he's sitting at the altar and he's just saying, God, this is who you called us to be. God, we are not. How long are you going to let this go on? In fact, that's how it begins, right? How long, oh Lord, will you let injustice and violence rule? God, you are a God of justice. God, you are a God of righteousness. God, you are a God of love and of peace. And you have established these things. And yet the people are doing the exact opposite of what you you have established and what you said you would allow. And it's going on. God, how long will you turn a blind eye to what is going on here and around us today? 
It's the prophet Habakkuk going, God, where are you? God, I've cried out and I don't see you. God, the blood of, of the people who, who, have, who have been oppressed, who have been put down, who have been denied justice is crying out to you. And yet we do not see you, God. He says, the wicked encircle the righteous. Isaiah is issuing a formal complaint. Isaiah Habakkuk is issuing a formal complaint against God. God, this is who you said you are. God, this is what we see. God, you have said you are sovereign, and yet we see that your will is not being done. God, how long will you let this go on? Justice is not being done. Justice prefers the rich, the powerful, the influential. Justice is perverted. How long, O oh Lord, will you let this go on? We don't know how long Habakkuk waited for an answer, but God responds. In fact, what God says is, guess what, Habakkuk? Some things are going to happen that are going to astonish you. They're going to blow you away. You wouldn't believe it had I told you it beforehand. And then God begins to describe how God is raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to bring justice and judgment upon Israel. The descriptions given of the Chaldeans, of the Babylonians, are frightening. I don't know if you... you it kind of registered. I've had to read it several times, so it registers to me. But, but their horses are like leopards, right? Imagine, imagine cavalry riding in on leopards. I mean, pretty frightening, if you ask me. But God describes this sort of rolling of the Babylonian army in a way that's sort of like an unstoppable force. It's this force that's, that's rolling through the nations, conquering that, that the king of the Babylonians, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, in this particular instance, looks at these fortresses and laughs and then builds siege walls and tumbles them to the ground. God describes to Habakkuk that judgment is coming at the hands of this people whose violence is their own God. And since violence works and since violence has gotten them land and property and wealth, they worship their violence. And have no other God. It is a truly frightening description that God gives to Habakkuk in his answer. This unstoppable force, this power that is coming, that God is going to hold God's people account by the Chaldeans, by the Babylonians. Certainly Habakkuk would know about the Babylonians. They had conquered Assyria like it was nothing, and Assyria was not nothing. They had bowled over the last defenses of the Egyptian empire. And they were coming. But Habakkuk takes no comfort in this answer. As you read this text, it is, it's this conversation between God and Habakkuk. Habakkuk issues this complaint. God says, watch this, right? Here's what I'm doing. But Habakkuk doesn't really like the answer. It brings no comfort to the prophet to know that God, that God is going to bring the Chaldeans, the Babylonians in to completely and utterly destroy Israel. Habakkuk even says, wait a minute, God, slow down a minute. Habakkuk is, is not just like doubting. He's horrified at this answer. God, he says, let me get this straight. 
There's injustice in Israel. We got that. We've established that. I cried out to you. So you're going to conquer the injustice of Israel with a greater injustice of the Chaldean army. Right? We're bad, but not that bad. It's kind of whataboutism for the 6th century BC. Wait, wait. I know we're bad, but they're worse. But Habakkuk has a point. Think about this for a second, right? God demands justice out of God's people. God is sovereign over all creation. And Habakkuk goes to great lengths to to make sure that God knows, God, you are sovereign. You are holy. You are the rock. You are the one. Everything you do is good. But God, I don't see how, how... how conquering us by the Chaldeans, by, by, by addressing one injustice with a greater injustice is any better. Habakkuk is horrified. Habakkuk doesn't like the answer. If you've ever been afraid to not like God's answer, Habakkuk's a good place to read. Because the prophet says, whoa, I don't get it. God did say, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. <laughs> Habakkuk's like, yeah, I don't. I don't understand. I don't see how that's good. I don't see how that's right. I don't see how that's just. And I don't see how that is holy. God, you cannot stand in justice. You cannot look on, on things that are not holy and pure and good. And I understand that Israel needs to be held to account. But by Babylon? God, they have no other God but themselves. God, you're going to punish Israel by letting Babylon just sweep the map clear. Roll across the map, destroying everything, catching everything in the nets, so to speak. God, is this really what you're doing? God, can this really be the answer? Surely it's an answer. It certainly wasn't the one Habakkuk was looking for. Perhaps Habakkuk was hoping another judge would come in. Someone great from within Israel would come and reform another Josiah, perhaps. Reform the people. Call the people back to Torah, right? Establish righteousness and goodness and the holiness of the people of God again. Maybe, maybe that's what Habakkuk was looking for and hoping for, right? God, I don't want destruction. I wanted reform. God, don't, don't, don't send judgment. Send a reformer. Send a prophet. Send a new king, whatever, but Babylon? God, I don't like it. I'm not happy with it. I'm not content with it. It's essentially what, is, what he says. And so he says, God, here's what I'm going to do. I'm posting myself on a watchtower, and I'm going to wait to see how you answer me. It's a fascinating text, isn't it? It's so different for me, at least reading it from reading the other prophets. Right? Isaiah doesn't like the message he has to bring to the people of Israel, right? He says, how long, O oh Lord? How long do I have to say this to the people, right? How long is this going to go on? God, really? You're going to destroy everything? You're going to wipe Israel off the map? How, how long? Can I, can I talk about hope sometime? In Isaiah 6, there's not much hope. There's a little bit, but not much. But Isaiah's like, okay, that's the message, and Isaiah preaches it. Jeremiah too. Jeremiah has dialogues with God. We talked about last week, right? He's, he's God, you want, me to, you want me to buy a field? But surely we're going to be destroyed. 
We have Jeremiah who laments over, over Jerusalem, who laments over the people of Israel, who says, God, I don't want to see this happen, and yet accepts the judgment of God and doesn't really say, God, I don't like how that's going, out, going down. But, but Habakkuk, Habakkuk's wonderful because he shows us a different side. He shows us a different side of what it means to be faithful and to be holy. He shows us the side that says, God's okay when we ask questions, even hard ones. God's okay even when we say, God, I don't like that answer. Again, there's, there's little of this throughout the scriptures. This is not the only place this happens, right? Abraham, God wants to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God, really? If like five people are righteous, will you still destroy it? And, and Abraham, you know, gets, bargains God down, right? Okay, 10 people, I won't destroy it. Right, we see that. We, we, Isaiah talks a little bit out. He calls out God, God, come let us argue together. Right, we see Job having this, this conversation with God about suffering and about all sorts of things. Like, so we see it in the scriptures, but, but Habakkuk, I just love it because he says, God, I'm planting myself here. Putting myself on this wall and I will wait and I will watch to what you have to say to me. I, I don't see it as a placing himself over and against God. But I see as a faithful stand saying, God, what I am seeing you do seems to me incongruous with your character. I, I, don't, I don't know how this matches up. I don't know how this works with your character. God, I don't see how this helps anything. What is replacing one violent regime with another violent regime going to really do for your namesake in this world? So he says, I'm going to wait. He doesn't walk away saying, God, I'm done with this. There's something to be said for that. He doesn't simply reject God and say, God, I don't, I don't buy that answer. I'm not, going to, I'm not going to say that to the people. He says, God, I'm going to wait here because I believe you will answer. But I'm not moving until you do. God, show me how this is compatible with your character. Violence, Habakkuk knew this. Violence doesn't solve violence. Injustice doesn't solve injustice. Two wrongs don't make a right. Habakkuk knows it. He says, God, I'm not seeing how that works out. The math doesn't add up to me, at least as it comes to your character, God. Because if this is all there is, I'm skeptical. In this case, what Habakkuk is saying is the cure is worse than the disease. This great injustice is much worse than this other one. God, how are you going to work it out? God, how is this at all compatible with who you are, who you've called us to be? Don't worry, he says. Oh, wait. I've got time. I'll wait to see how you will answer me. It's an act of faith. It's a stubborn faith. God, I don't get it. Help me understand. God, I don't like it. Help me understand. God, this doesn't seem like you. Help me understand. What I find really interesting 
is how unsatisfying, at least on its face, God's answer is. God doesn't take Habakkuk through kind of the ins and outs of what it means to hold one nation accountable and using this nation and that God will judge all nations and hold all nations accountable. God, God didn't talk about that. He's like, well, here's how the mechanics of this work. I'm just sort of letting things work out. Violence breeds violence, breeds violence, breeds violence. God, God doesn't say any of that. I mean, all that's true. But God doesn't say that. He doesn't, he doesn't explain to Habakkuk what's going on. Perhaps Habakkuk wouldn't understand. Habakkuk is limited. God is not, right? We're limited in our understanding. God is not. But what God does say is, this is not all there is. He's saying, Habakkuk, here's what I want you to do. There is an end coming. This is not the end. The Babylonians conquering Israel is not the end of what I'm doing in history. It, it, it's, it, it's a short view, and, and, it, and, it, and it seems bad right now, but, but this is not the end. This is not my goal. My goal is not one violent regime to overthrow another. In fact, I would posit to say that God's goal is, goal is not to have violent regimes overthrow violent regimes. God says there's a vision coming. A vision of the end. A vision of all things made new. A vision where, where this doesn't happen. Because injustice, we know, breeds injustice. And we're seeing it play out. That's what he, God says to Habakkuk. Quite frankly, that's what we see. Right? Injustice leads to injustice. The means don't ever justify the ends because the means are the ends. Right? It, it never works out. But, but, but this is not the end. And that's what God says. God says, here's what I want you to do. I'm going to give you a vision and I want you to write it down. I want you to chisel it on tablets of stone. And then there's some interesting and quite confusing Hebrew where he says, I want you to write it so big that a runner can read it. This is the vision in my mind when he says that. Let's see if it gives me the next one. There it is. <laughs> that's the runner reading it. That's the vision in my mind when I read this. We don't quite know what it means. Again, the Hebrew is difficult and nuanced and it's several thousand years old, so it's hard to understand. But basically what God is saying is, Habakkuk, I want you to write this down and I want you to make it plain and clear so that anyone and everyone can read it. Now, there's two purposes behind that. I want everyone to see. And if everyone sees, then guess who's on the hook for that vision? God. God says, I want you to write this down so that it might be known that this is what I am saying and this is what I am promising. That an end is coming. This violence, oppression, warring nations, over-conquering by, by dubious means, even if your ends are good. He says, this is going away. This is not how I want to do things. This is not how I desire to do things. In fact, something is coming. It's going to put an end to all this. But guess what? He says, you might have to wait for it. If it tarries, God says to Habakkuk, wait nonetheless, for I will be faithful to what I have promised. Frustrating for me is God doesn't say what that vision of the end is. I'm a fairly astute 
scholar of scripture, so I can make some guesses, which I'll share in a minute. But God doesn't say, this is how it's going to happen. This is the end. This is what's going to work out. Everything's going to work out and, 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 and peace and harmony and love and joy, right? God doesn't say that. He says, there's a vision of the end. It is coming. I am bringing my rule, my reign. I am making all things new. Write it down. Post it here. Post it where everyone can see. I am going to do this. And then basically God says, you might have to wait. That's the wrong slide. You might have to wait. He's saying it's coming. And if it should seem to tarry, nevertheless, wait, it is coming. And then God says something that I'm going to read it again in this particular translation. And then I'm going to remind you what it says in the original or what it says in most translations that you're familiar with. would figure that I'd lose it. It wasn't in front of me. Okay, here's the, here's the verse. Some people's desires are truly audacious. They don't do the right thing. But the righteous person will live honestly. Most of us know that phrase in, but the righteous person will live by faith. God says to Habakkuk, it may tarry, but I'm doing it. And there's ways that seem right to most people, but, but oftentimes it is crooked. Oftentimes it is bent. Oftentimes there's ways that seem good and right to us or that seem like they justify or, or get to the ends we want, but they're crooked. You might want to take shortcuts to get to this end that I'm telling you about, but wait for it because I'm bringing it. If you pursue it on your own, if you try to do it in your strength and your power with, with all kind of your ways of thinking, guess what? It will go astray. If you try to short circuit what I'm doing, it will go astray. But the righteous person will live by faith. Now, it's important to note that living by faith is not simply saying believing it'll happen. The righteous person will believe it will happen. That is true. The righteous person has a firm belief that God will do what God has said God will do in God's time. But part and parcel with living by faith is not so much living by belief, but acting faithfully. The righteous person will live faithfully. Living faithfully means doing the things that God has called us to do even if we don't see the ends that we think we ought to see. In love, consider others as more important than yourself. Paul writes. Living faithfully means not simply saying, that's going to get me taken advantage of. Because the answer is it will. Living faithfully means this is the way God has called us to live and we will walk in it. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That doesn't win wars, by the way. But it is living faithfully to the way God has called us to live. Christ has torn down the dividing wall so that in Jesus there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. It certainly feels like there's divisions among us. There's national boundaries, there's color boundaries, there's ethnic boundaries. 
There's economic boundaries. God, if, if I didn't care about any of those things, then, then life's going to be messy. Absolutely. Living faithfully means living in the mess, for this is the way God has called us to live. Is it easy? No. Is it practical? Not really. It's righteousness, living faithfully, believing the way God has called us to live, to embody God's kingdom here and now, even if we don't see it around us. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live faithfully, will believe what God has said, despite perhaps external evidence to the contrary. Sometimes I look around and it's hard for me to believe that God is in charge. I hope that doesn't come as a shock to any of you. But sometimes it's hard to see. There's been a war going on in Ukraine that seems so logically wrong. Since February. How can this go on if God is good? I don't care if either of those nations claim to be Christian or neither of them do. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem the way that God would do things. It's hard for me to believe that God is in charge sometimes. Because if God really was in charge, would that happen? Nation rising up against nation? For the sake of land or ethnic identity or any of the reasons we tend to go to war? I see the way people treat each other. And I go, God, are you really in charge? Have we not learned over how many thousands of years? We can't just love one another. God, are you really in charge? Sometimes I look around and go, are we really still dealing with race in this country? Haven't we gotten over that yet? God, if you were in charge, wouldn't we see at least, I mean, maybe we've made some progress, but really? The witness of our brothers and sisters of other colors would say we've made very little. God, are you really in charge? Is the promise that you will do things, that you will make all things new, really true? Sometimes it's hard to act faithfully in the midst of the evidence to the contrary. That that just doesn't work. It makes me say, God, I believe. Help my unbelief. This is what Habakkuk's going through. God, I don't see it. I don't know. Now, in the rest of the book, Habakkuk will come to more peace about this. But we're left here with this tension, with this feeling of discomfort. God, we don't, we don't see it. We don't, we don't see how this is all going to work out. God, I don't get it. It's hard to live faithfully when sometimes the evidence shows that it's just useless. It feels like that's what the evidence says sometimes. God, I believe. Help my unbelief. This week, I, I had the privilege of watching several sermons that were from a preaching conference in Kansas City. 
And the last preacher, the keynote speaker, preached on Hebrews chapter 11. And so I'm going to read a portion of that particular text to you today. Because I think it's perhaps instructive for us. Or at the very least will remind us that we are in good company. So Hebrews chapter 11, if you want to follow along, make sure I'm accurate. I think I'm going to start with 1132. Background. Heroes of the faith. The author of the Hebrews has talked about all these heroes of the faith, about Abraham, about Isaac, about Jacob, about Sarah, who, who believed in God and believed what God had promised would be true even when there was evidence to the contrary, right? Abraham, who, who didn't have his child until he was 110 years old. God promised decades earlier. Sarah, who laughed when God said, oh, it'll come from you. You'll get pregnant. She considered it a joke. So much so that she named her son, he laughs. Goes through a litany of folks who have been faithful to God, even when the evidence around seemed to say faithfulness was not the way to go. That other ways were better. So I'm going to pick it up in 32. What more should I say? For time would fail me to tell about Gideon, about Barak, about Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, obtained promises, shut the mouth of lions, quenched raging fire, escaped the edge of the sword, won strength out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, refusing to accept release in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others suffered mocking and flogging in even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned to death. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and of goats, destitute, persecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered deserts and mountains and in caves and in holes in the ground. Yet all of these, though they were commended for their faith, did not receive what was promised. I don't know if that brings you comfort. But think about this for a second. The author goes through this litany of people and he says that even they did not receive what was promised. What was promised to them was a better land, a a better world, a better place to be where God's justice was absolute, where people did and acted as they were supposed to do on on mass. Where not just the righteous live by faith, but all live by faith. Where God's rule was sovereign and absolute. Where, in the words of Isaiah, the wolf would lie down with the lamb. Where the child would play on the den of the serpent. But even all these, he says, did not obtain that which they were seeking. In that, we can know that we are in good company. But here's the good news, folks. For just at the right time, God sent Christ. And what happened in Jesus may not have been the full and final end, but it was the beginning of the end for this way of living. 
where violence conquers violence, where injustice conquers injustice, where injustice leads to more injustice, where violence leads to more violence, this endless cycle of people living in ways that just bring about death. For at just the right time, Christ came, the word became flesh and made its dwelling among us. And in that Christ died for the ungodly, which is me. And Christ doesn't conquer by violence. His followers wanted him to. Right? That, that was partially, probably the hope of at least some of his disciples. That he would come in, that he would bring the sword, and that he would rout with the righteous arm of God, right? That he would kick Rome out and win the day. God's kingdom would be established. In fact, even after Christ raises from the dead, his disciples say, is now the time you will bring the kingdom back to Israel? They were still living in this world, in this mindset. But Jesus does not conquer through violence. He conquers through his own death. It is not violence that conquers. It is the love and the grace of God demonstrated in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even that's not yet the end. To look to the end, we we look further on in Scripture. We look to the heroes of the faith who looked for a better country, who longed for a better thing, who are looking forward to the resurrection and the restoration of all things. It is that faith that kept Abraham going. That God would be true to God's promises. That one day God would do something as in Christ that would, that would begin to be the beginning of the end, that would conquer even death itself. It's that hope that kept Abraham, Isaac, Jacob going. It's that hope that that kept Paul going through all the trials of his missionary journeys. It's that hope that gave strength to the martyrs who went to death in the Colosseum. It's that hope that kept Martin Luther going, saying, wait a minute, this faith thing is real. It's that hope that have kept our ancestors in the faith going for they longed for a better country and they believed that God would be faithful. That though God tarried, the end would come. That all things would be made new. They believed and they kept going. We're still not there. Oh, we live after Jesus. Which means we have a great advantage because we have seen the beginnings of the end. Christ crucified and Christ risen. Death itself conquered by death. Death itself conquered by the love of God poured out for us in Jesus Christ. We can see into that distant land. One of the great stories of of Moses is Moses ascending to the top of the Mount Nebo. And knowing he won't get into the promised land, God allows him to see it. He sees it and he spies it and he dies in peace. For he believes that God will lead God's people in. It's that faith that have kept our ancestors in the faith going 
through good times and through bad. On the night before Martin Luther King was assassinated, he gave a speech. Many of you presumably are familiar with his speech. He was in Memphis, Tennessee, um, supporting the, I'm trying to remember what it was, it was the garbage workers' strike. We know Martin Luther King was a great advocate for civil rights. Obviously, he didn't know what was going to happen to him the next day. But he gave a speech the night before, and he's talking about the struggle for, for justice, a godly struggle. Right, a struggle of, of, of people of color longing to be seen as human alongside of everyone else. And he talks about that struggle. And at the end of his sermon, he says this. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't really matter with me now because I have been to the mountaintop, he says. I don't mind. He says, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I am not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he has allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, he said. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. And so I am happy tonight. I am not worried about anything. I am not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. I didn't do it justice. I would encourage you all to go and listen to that speech. I listened to it before I preached this morning. And I think about it however many years later, 68 to 2022, his dream still isn't Complete. But Martin Luther King was a man of faith in his struggle for justice for people of color and I believe in his faith in Almighty God to bring all things to God's self. Martin Luther King is also credited with saying that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. The arc of history is long and it does not always seem like we are going where God wants us to go. But guess what? God bends all things towards God's fulfillment. It's that vision that we read about in Revelation 21. Of the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven and landing here in our midst. the waters of life flow from the throne of God where trees grow that give fruit in and out of season where the nations stream to hear justice and to worship God where there is no need of sun for the light comes from the throne and gives light to all people it is this vision that Isaiah saw in chapter 2 when he said One day is coming when the Lord's mountain will be raised above all other nations and the nations will stream to it. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks and they will learn war no more. Martin Luther King said he had been to the mountaintop and spied this distant country. Isaiah saw it. 
John of Patmos saw it. Paul saw it. And many of our ancestors have seen it. They've been to the mountaintop and they have seen the promised land and they have pressed on faithfully in the midst of some terrible, terrible odds because they believed that God would be true to what God has said. They believed that distant country was reality. I'm going to finish up so that we can take communion together, but continuing on in Hebrews 11. Yet all these, though they were committed for their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better so that they would not, apart from us, be made perfect. If God had brought all things to God's own self with Isaiah, I wouldn't partake and neither would you. They would not, apart from us, be made perfect. There's a communal nature to all of this. That when we get to the distant country, we will get there together. With Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, with Martin Luther King, with Martin Luther, with John Wesley, and with so many others who have gone on before. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame, and has taken his seat at the right hand of God. Let us run the race together with those who have gone before with this great cloud of witnesses, living faithfully to what God has called us to be because we believe, sometimes against all odds, that God will bring us into the distant country together. God makes all this possible through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Who has made a way so that we might be reconciled to God. So that we might, however imperfectly, run the race that has been set before us. And so come with those who have gone before to the land of promise. Let us pray. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we come to this, your table, this communion supper, which was instituted by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's a sacrifice which proclaims his life, his sufferings, and his sacrificial death and resurrection. We remember that it shows forth the Lord's death until his returns. Lord, we celebrate the supper, which is a means of grace in which Christ is present by the spirit. And Lord, we receive it today in reverent appreciation and gratefulness for the work of Christ. 
Lord, we believe that you have called all of those who are truly repentant, forsaking our sins, and believing into Christ for salvation, that we are invited to participate in this, the memorial and the remembrance of the death and resurrection of Christ. Lord God, we come to this table that we might be renewed in life and salvation, and that we might be made one in the Spirit. And so in the unity of the church, we confess our faith that Christ has died, that Christ has risen, and that Christ will come again. Holy God, we gather at this your table in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, who by your spirit was anointed to preach the good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He healed the sick, he fed the hungry, he ate with sinners. He established the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins, and we live in the hope of his coming again. On the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, when the supper was over, he took the cup, he gave thanks, and he gave it to his disciples and said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And so we gather as the body of Christ to offer ourselves to you in praise and thanksgiving. Lord, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts. Make them by the power of your spirit be for us the body and blood of Christ that we might be the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one in Christ, one with each other and one in the ministry of Christ to all the world until Christ comes in final victory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now, as the Savior has taught us, will you join with me in praying the Lord's Prayer together? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, if you'll take the bread. This is the body of our Lord Jesus Christ broken for you. May it preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Eat this in remembrance of Christ who died for you. Be thankful. This is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ shed for you. May it preserve you blameless unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ died for you and be thankful. Jeremiah said that he was a prisoner of hope. We too are prisoners of hope. We believe... That what God has said, God will do. When it tarries and when we doubt, we say, Lord, we believe. Help us in our unbelief. We too long for that distant country. And believe that God will get us there. That we will be united with him again. With that great cloud of witnesses forever. And so I would ask as we close today by way of response that we would stand and sing this hymn together.